I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 58, I think. Sure. Anyway, uh, thanks to everybody who replied uh, or emailed about our last episode about Moneyball. Uh, I appreciate the encouragement and all that. And as long as we're spreading the thanks around, uh, last episode we discussed uh, a project that my co-host, Josh Long, who's here with me. Josh. Good morning, everyone, or good evening, or whatever. Whatever. Whatever your time zone might be. So well, it's not morning or evening, depending on the time zone. It's just could be. Oh, fair enough. Tyler, could you explain the internet? Eh, who is that? I don't know, and I'm not going to know for a moment. So, uh, so the uh, but anyway, uh, we mentioned a project that Josh was was trying to get funded called uh, the Unemployed Mind. It was a web. It is a web series. And, it will uh, be a web series. It will be. Yes, I'm sorry, I, I forgot about tenses. So. <laughs> Uh, it has now gotten, it's now all funded through uh, Kickstarter. So uh, for those of you who uh, helped out, we really appreciate that. I will mention, though, this Kickstarter thing is still going for like two more days. <laughs> if you want to give us more money, hey, that's just more that our actors and crew will get paid. There so you go. And you want the actors me. and crew to get paid. It's a very it's rare, good. for those that might uh, live in Los Angeles or work in the entertainment industry, it's kind of a rare thing for uh, cast and crew to get paid on, especially, especially on a web series, especially on anything with the internet. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, you can head on over to that and uh, I will put a link. Uh, there are numerous links on Facebook and Twitter, uh, as well as in the uh, uh the website post for this episode, I'll put a link to the Kickstarter. So if you want, you can contribute. At this point, it's already paid for. So really, anything you can give it's all is gravy. above and beyond, and it's and it'll it'll help out the actors and crew. So yeah. and thank you again, everyone. We really appreciate that. And also, uh, the the show will hopefully be available to watch and all in June or July or something like that. So once that's up, we'll be keeping everybody posted. Well, I mean, you will. So you can follow Josh on Twitter. Yeah. I've, I've done my part. <laughs> so uh, now, a moment ago, you might have, you know, I'm sure you, you heard this third voice and you said, who is that? I know one thing. He likes to interrupt. <laughs> but now I'll tell you who it is. It's uh, Doug Benson. <laughs> oh, well done. That guy's awesome. Um, no, it's, it's, it's an actor, writer, uh, philosopher, I like to think. Um, <laughs> so do I, you know? All right. And his name is Jeff Newberg. That's me. Jeff. How you doing? Good, Tyler. Thanks for having me come by. Oh, no problem. Thanks for thanks for stopping by. Um, so like- it sounds like that was an outro. I'm sorry. <laughs> thanks for stopping by. <laughs> Take right, it easy, Jeff. Guys. That was fun. You kind of right, sound like this episode. is sort of like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood too, where people just drop by and ask. It's like, look who's here. It's that would Jeff be Newberg. Wonderful. I would love that. Or yeah, like I just an old guy in my sweater, and now I've got to put it right back on because <laughs> I'm just leaving again. I like the idea of like an old timey Christian film criticism version of like 
The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's quite a subgenre you've created. <laughs> it, it exists, and I think at the moment there are two entities associated with it. And I, I'm taking that on faith. I don't know of a second one. Mm. So, okay. Jeff, mm. you're here. You're an actor mm. and a writer. Mm. We're going to talk less about the philosophy at the moment. All we'll right. get to that in, a, uh, in, in well, let's say, an hour. So, um, so I know you primarily. Well, I know you because we we attend the same church. But uh, I remember I first saw you as an actor in a, a show called Lie to Me. But we will not talk about that because okay. there are other things mm-hmm. I want to get mm-hmm. to that are more important. But. Uh, you're an actor. Mm. Give us some background. Where are you from? What? How did you decide you wanted to get into into acting and into the arts in general? Uh, well, the acting answer is is backward. I'm glad you asked the question that way. Arts in general, because that's how it happened. Uh, right. I was born and raised in Phoenix, and I went to school in Chicago at Northwestern. Mm. Uh, and I I started studying. My my majors were religion and fiction writing. Uh, the way that happened was I I. I found Jesus. Oh, that's a man. That sounds weirder and weirder. The older I get, um, I uh, yeah, I, I I got my life changed. Uh, took a wrecking ball to it uh, about the age of fourteen, and then through high school uh, became more and more foundational to my life. Uh, and I got convinced I was going to be a pastor. And uh, knowing uh, at the time. Knowing that I was going to be a pastor, I wanted to go to an academically rigorous secular university and study uh, other religions. If I was going to be spending the rest of my life telling people about what I believed and why they should believe it, I thought maybe I should have um, sort of a ground floor knowledge of other faiths. Not the worst instinct, by the way. Uh, well, I think it was a good instinct. It was also probably the, the most challenging and, and one of the most painful trials you could kind of go through. I mean, the secular study of religion in my department was amazing as far as, you know, academic rigor goes. But the secular study of religion is, I think one way to describe it would be uh, why you, an evangelical Christian, are wrong about everything. Um, I could see it going that way, yeah. And so getting out of that alive with my faith, which uh, I did, uh, I certainly count as a victory. But anyway, while doing that, uh, I also sort of got... uh, deeper into the arts. I had a lot of opportunities there to uh, participate in visual art and music uh, and pretty much the the avant-garde side of those two things. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Chicago at the time. Um, And so I picked up that fiction writing major I mentioned, uh, writing a lot of fiction and poetry and making a lot of uh, installation video and photo art and then sort of just backed into acting. I I took one class and sort of found that it was sort of my my philosophy on art, and there are a lot of different philosophies on arts, on, on the arts, but mine has always been tied up in truth-telling. And that, um, for me, uh, art is the exploration, uh, discovery, and presentation of truth, and, and whether that's sort of an ultimate truth or a more relative truth about a, a particular subject. Um, given that that's sort of my understanding of art... And, you know, I, I, that was sort of my compass for the visual art and the music and all that stuff. When I came to acting, it sort of seemed like maybe the best medium for my philosophy because everybody, you know, a lot of people look at a painting and say, well, I, I can't judge that. I'm not an art critic. 
but everybody thinks they can judge acting. And I think the reason they think that is because everybody lives in reality. And reality is the bar by which the vast majority of people judge acting. Mm-hmm. And, and so in, in a very kind of simple sense, acting is very much about truth. And so that's sort of a long-winded answer to your question. but It is something that I've, on, on my other show, I, I've talked about this from time to time, that uh, in, in film school, uh, certain things, certain aspects of film are emphasized uh, over others. And I would say maybe even rightfully so, like editing and cinematography, the more technical elements, the, thing, the, the, the aspects that make film distinct hmm. uh, amongst the other, uh, the other artistic uh, mediums. But uh, I tend to focus on character writing and acting, which is very much... I mentioned this in the last episode, in fact, that uh, that's a bit more theatrical. Mm-hmm. But as time... And, and I often felt uh, somewhat ashamed that those are the things that I tend to uh, focus on. But as time has gone on, I come to realize that like character and specifically acting, whether people know it or not, that really is... Those like the characters and the actors playing them, they are the ones representing real the reality of the film to the audience. It is their job to sell the reality, even if it's an outlandish reality, like you'll find in say a David Lynch film, or even something like Lord of the Rings, where you know there's hobbits and wizards and all kinds of crazy stuff and trolls and orcs and all that. But are you saying those aren't real? Well, not in this country. Like that I was Claus in New Zealand. I'm sorry, Billy. Santa Claus <laughs> is totally fake. I was in New Zealand recently, and they I did have to navigate uh, some orcs. Yeah. So, but they're not dangerous. They're just kind of annoying. Really? Yeah. So they're like trying to sell you star maps and things like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because the stars—they're all over New Zealand. <laughs> but uh, and so, but the idea is like the way you sell this rather unusual reality is with, I think strong writing that that a viewer can relate to and actors giving performances that we can recognize maybe not ourselves but we can recognize humanity in it like that's mm. stuff you know outland some of the more outlandish genres like horror or fantasy if we if the actor is not doing a good job selling the emotion of fear or awe or whatever we're not going to be invested and so i feel like they're almost the front line in in dramatic in dramatic art and that includes film mm. so i kind of agree with you so well, well hey we've got it figured out yeah all right <laughs> thanks for listening oh no there's an episode i'm sorry that's I'm not just the only putting my sweater back on man <laughs> so, um but yeah so you wh- uh, when did you come out to uh, los angeles so uh after graduation i made this weird choice of uh becoming a teacher and that lasted for like two weeks uh, and then so pretty direct, pretty directly after that, I came out here and, um, kind of dove into more extensive acting training because like I said, it, it sort of happened for me toward the end of college, like mm-hmm. even trying this thing. And so did that really focus on that for a couple of years out here. And then toward the end of that, and right after that really went after it as a, as a career and a profession, uh, with you know varying degrees of success, having to wait wait tables most of my life out here until until recently, and my fingers are crossed that this second maybe third retirement from waiting tables is the one that holds <laughs> we'll see um, but yeah, and then since i've been out here it's been a focus on acting and then even 
even later than coming to acting, I came to writing for the screen versus writing for the page. I mentioned mm-hmm. I, had a, I, I studied fiction and poetry writing, and I uh, never thought that I'd, I'd try to write for the screen, but it sort of seemed to make sense mm-hmm. since it was why I was out here, and I thought I'd try it. And I was shocked to see that the, the first attempt I made at a, an original feature I actually really liked. I mean, don't get me wrong, nobody else liked it and yeah. wanted to make it, but... Uh, but it, it, it was enough of a kernel to, to keep pushing me toward it. Now, how is that, uh, that crossover for you sort of between, you said fiction writing, would that be like uh, short stories for you or like what, or, or for books? Me or, was, for me, it was predominantly stories. Okay. Um, I mean, I love stories. It's not really, uh, no one can make their living writing stories. You, you have to eventually, you know, write those novels. Uh, and I wrote a couple of, um, you know, mini novels, novellas, like 80 page works, but I really have a love for the story form and for a lot of forms of poetry that, uh, you know, that nobody reads anymore. Um, and, and for hybrids thereof, like a a lot of my favorite writers, uh, kind of do these mutts between fiction and poetry. Stuart Dybeck is a Chicago writer who I kind of hold up as a, as a hero who I kind of had the privilege to study under and Hmm. I don't know, I, I kind of count as a friend now and he answers my emails and it's great. (laughs) Um, and you've had, uh, you've had some success recently as a writer, which we'll get to, uh, in a moment, Mm -hmm. but first, uh, I do want to, and, and people can look at your IMDb page and look at your filmography. We will not be (laughs) touching everything on it, but there are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of notable projects that I'm fascinated with. Um, one of them is you were on an episode of the young and the restless guilty as charged. Okay. That's the only way you can respond to that, by the way. Um, I'm joking, of course. If you enjoy soap operas, it's not my place to judge you. God will judge you. Um, I'm getting worse. I'm sorry. But the uh, to me, that actually seems fascinating because you actually run across... It's a notable thing in the last couple of years is James Franco, who went and played a character Stole named Franco. Idea. Really? Stole my idea to get famous and then start working on, on soap operas. That's all right. Shaun of the Dead stole my idea to have a genre film in the midst of a zombie movie. But uh, so we could be millionaires mm. if we uh, were famous and then implemented our ideas. Yeah, right. There's a lot of steps right. in between. Hang up. But, uh, but, the, but to me, the idea of stepping into something that, I mean, The Young and the Restless was going, what, 30 years? Yeah. 40? And, and like 250 episodes a year. Yeah. And yeah. so step and people watch it for decades yeah. you know and the idea of you even for just one episode stepping in to this thing recognizing that it's a whole different brand of acting wildly so like did you find that interesting or uh, did you find it frustrating or was it like exhilarating to sort of let yourself go uh in a way <laughs> that uh, most performances you don't really have to i'm actually really thrilled you want to talk about this because okay, good. i think it's a really interesting the the way i think about i i, I was up for a like a, a contract role in a soap opera recently and it would have been like a probably like six months to to a year of just doing nothing but this soap opera and it's the kind of thing where when I wasn't an actor, but rather an appreciator of acting and a film buff and all that stuff, um, I, I would have, knowing myself as I thought I did, I would have always told you there's just no chance I have any interest in that. It is not, it's not quality writing. It's not part, something I want to I do. And it's my best, the soap opera 
kind of paradigm shift I've gone through is sort of my best example of the difference between being an artist working in a form and being a critic. Mm-hmm. Um, that that perspective I described just a second ago is sort of the, the perspective of a critic. But as an artist, there is nothing more exciting to me than attempting and maybe failing to bring quality work to a typically bereft genre. Mm-hmm. And when I was up for this part in this unnamed soap opera, um, what, like a month ago now, I, you know, just to sort of get the tone of a show, it's a good idea to sort of watch a few episodes before you go in, whatever it is. And because like you said, style, I mean, even within genre, even within like, within a very specific genre of say like the crime procedural, you Mm -hmm. know, which is defined network TV for about the last decade. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, good. I mean, you know, the, you know, the, the, the sort of people and style they're going to be casting on, on one CSI can be incredibly different from another CSI. Uh, very much so in fact. And so watching a couple episodes of this soap, you know, there's like 12 pretty regular actors at, at any given time and watching it like 10 of them are just, I, I can't, I can't, look at the screen it's just so bad it's just so hard to watch and of course the writing's terrible and then come these two and i feel like it's in their contract that they're only they'll only act with each other because all their scenes are just together and they're blowing my mind like they're so good and i'm just like what and i'm you know i am being them to see what else they've done and the answer is uh, some stuff but not much and i you know i'm just like when i start directing big stuff if that ever happens sorry that sounded like a weird thing to take for granted um like I'm going to cast these folks because they're geniuses. And the other side of it is just the workman mentality. Like I think when you, when you practice a, a craft, whether it's an art or a craft, I don't know. But when you practice a craft for a long time, there's something really attractive about being able to go somewhere and do that nine to five, five days a week. And that is what you do on a soap. That's not what most actors get the chance to do. I mean, successful actors often get to work 50 days a year and the rest of the time they're bored or they're investing in real estate or, or they have a rock band. And I think that's an awesome, no, I think that's like an awesome legitimate thing to do. Some of, some of my favorite actors actually do that. They're locked into these giant ridiculous contracts on a network procedural crime drama. But guess what? All the rest of their time is spent, doing these silly internet drawings that they put on t-shirts and distribute to their fans. And it's like, well, they're the artist is getting exercised somehow, but yes, that's how I feel about soap acting. If that man, that was a long answer. That's all right. Uh, people are used to that kind of thing just, uh, from me. So, you know, <laughs> I think it's important to know your place. So, and you mentioned the, and yes, sir, you mentioned the, cri- the crime procedural mm. and that is almost more fascinating to me. Mm. Because you were on uh, Lie to Me, but in a in a smaller role, not not like an in, uh, integral role. But then you were on well post editing a smaller role. Oh, I'm sorry. That was actually no, no. That was actually a, a lot of fun, and I was, you know, I was on set six of the eight days that they shot that episode. In the original cut, he's Tim Roth's dad. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's yeah, really something. Really got they changed a lot. Um. And I don't mean to diminish your no, your role or anything. All. It Please sounds like diminish. the editors already did. Diminish, <laughs> but um, but then you were. Yeah, I remember you told me, and I want we wanted to try and uh, make this happen before the show came out, but it just didn't uh, yeah. materialize. Uh, you were on a recent episode back in uh, February, I believe, mm. 
Jan- or was it January? Late January, yeah. Late January of the show Criminal Minds, mm. which I'll be honest with you, I had never seen an episode of. Mm. Um, even though I like the majority of the cast and everyone else, I don't really know. So I, I would say I have a generally positive feeling towards them. Um, and I like a good, a good uh, crime procedural. Mm. And uh, so I watched your episode mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. You know, for uh, for the most part, I, uh, I I have a feeling like if I had followed the show more, I'd be a bit more invested in the regular characters, right. and so it, certain things would have had have more depth for me, and I'd have more more resonance with me. Um, but you played a very important role in that episode. You spoilers. were spoilers, spoilers, the killer. I was the killer, yeah. and so um, I knew it. <laughs> I just. Uh, I could just tell when you walked in. You just have that <laughs> vibe to you. Um, and so I feel like a procedural where it's, you know, a, a soap opera, that's, you know, a story can be going on for six months. Mm. Procedural, one episode, mm. one and done, unless you're one of the main cast members. And if you are the killer, like, there is a lot of pressure on you to to sort of carry to carry the tone of the episode hmm. and that, and that episode, and I don't know if other criminal minds are, are like this. Uh, the tone seemed to be surprisingly melancholy and sad and, uh, certainly unstable and in the, the instability of, of your character and, and other characters relationships to each other, um, kind of added the tension, but there really did seem to be a sadness to it that I have to assume is not in most of the episodes. And um, so did you find a fair amount of pressure or was it just fun? I, uh, I feel, I feel like I'm, maybe I'm just emotionally retarded. Uh, but I feel like I, I, I feel a lot of pressure in, in circumstances where normal folks don't feel any. Mm-hmm. And when people you know, talk about acting or talk about the business and they, you know, say, how did you deal with that? It always seems like I didn't feel any pressure in that, in that circumstance. So I, I, I did not, it was certainly a weird episode to sort of address your, uh, the writing. They, they don't often write guest guest parts on, on any shows anymore, but on that show in particular, uh, that big anymore it was it was unusual to put that much of a kind of screen time and dialogue burden on a guest cast member and sort of the emotional heavy lifting is usually they don't they don't they try not to again you said pressure they they try not to you know put kind of the it was a very uh sort of up and down emotionally sort of part a lot of you know that stuff and so for me just you know i'm i'm not i haven't even had that many chances to even audition for series regular parts on shows where, you know, you do kind of more regularly get a chance to stretch yourself and, you know, leads in films where you get to kind of stretch out and explore a character. And as far as big productions go, that was the best chance I've ever had to do that. And for me, it was always just a feeling of excitement. There wasn't really a chance to feel pressure when you're so amped, uh, to, to be doing to be doing that work and to be exploring a character uh, that is just so much richer than what you're usually going to see in that genre or you know than I've usually had the opportunity to do, to do outside of a little theater production. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was a blast, and let me just tell you, folks, 
everybody on that show is as sweet as they seem on camera. Mm-hmm. And that's from the heart. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know how to say that without sounding sarcastic, but it, it was like a dream. It's like a big happy family over there, and I'm in love with all of them, especially Matthew Gray Goobler. Who was uh, Dr. Reed, sort of my, I'm sort of his, I don't know, nemesis or something. Doppelganger or something Doppelganger. like that. Doppelganger. Um, much better. There was a, uh, and the other thing, as I was as I was uh, researching this, it's interesting to me, because more so than, say, The Young and the Restless, which I would say has a pretty loyal fan base, hmm. shows like, like that, which get, you know, crazy ratings, um, they have a very loyal fan base who will take to the internet and go and speak in depth about every episode oh yeah they will and uh and so i watched your episode i was like oh that's interesting i wonder <sighs> because i don't <laughs> often engage with the exception of like survivor and the amazing race i really don't engage with television very much mm. as it's happening mm. i'll watch something on netflix yeah. you know and that kind of thing but uh something that's maybe 10 years old and thus people really aren't talking about it that much <laughs> um you're searching out the twin peaks forums like oh, oh guys <laughs> we gotta talk about this that one might actually well, I don't think I want to talk probably somewhere. there man I don't think I want to talk to those people though but like Deadwood like those are the oh. it's such a wonderful show although I know that you uh, aren't a big fan of uh, I don't know what you're about to say but if it's that I'm not a fan of Deadwood you nuts uh, well I don't you know what we had a discussion earlier and uh, I don't want you to I don't want to put you in a position to burn any bridges oh if you hate Ian McShane, uh, it's not my place uh, to say. Ah, uh, I see. That's a joke, of course. Uh, you, uh, you love I Ian McShane, as we all do. McShane, and I'm in love with that show. Um, but anyway, and so so I thought, like, I wonder if Criminal Minds, I wonder if anybody, uh, just so naive, just dipping my toe into uh, mm. the world of people who enjoy Criminal Minds and feel the need to discuss it. Huh. And uh, boy, oh boy, that, it, like, having just done this thing, which to you is a fun acting gig but now suddenly you're part of this much larger thing with a huge fan a huge loyal excited fan base did you did any of them like did you get facebook uh it happens a little bit i mean like i think you focus if you're a crazy fan you focus your crazy on the big fish mainly okay so like goobler has what like i think at this point he has like 200,000 followers on Twitter. Okay. But that's also because he's an amazing tweeter. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of that. And they were, uh, you know, they were very kind, you know, the fans, they do like the ratings of the episode and they have their forums and stuff. And people were really, really supportive and awesome. And, um, and I got to do like a little fan chat the night, the night after the night after they, uh, premiere all the episodes, they do like a, cause they, like you said, they've got this big, uh, fan base that's really geeked out about the show. Uh, they always do a fan chat with like the writer of the episode or the director of the episode and one of the cast members. And then they, they were just really sweet to ask me as a guest cast member to, to be the, the actor in that, in that fan chat. And the fans were, the fans were really cool. It was just, um, yeah, it's nice to, it's nice to walk, especially, and I know Josh can empathize with this, when you spend a lot of your time trying to build projects from the ground up, things you've written and things you're trying to produce and direct that are, you know, as far as I've, anything I've ever done, it's just very gorilla and shoestring and makes you want to pull your hair out. It's, it's amazing to walk in with only one job, and that's to act in, my, in, in this scenario, to just walk into this established set where everything runs smoothly and there's an established fan base and it's got an air date that's going to come in six weeks and 
And that was just a really special thing, not only to, to walk into the practical awesome stuff, but the, the more slippery stuff of being welcome in, welcomed into what is a family? Like, I mean, it's their seventh season. These, these folks are tight with each other and to be welcomed in and hugged and smiled at and conversed with. And hmm. yeah, it's, it's the way you hope it, it always is. And I think I've been lucky in that most of, most of my set experiences have been like that. Hmm. Uh, and so you mentioned some of the uh, projects that you've had to build from uh, the ground up. And so let's talk briefly about those. What's coming up in, in your future? Um, in the very near future, which I'm sure is before this will... Well, I'm not sure, but it's probably before this gets posted. Uh, this this Saturday, will be posting in a few hours. Okay. No, after this. Is it going to be happening in a few hours? It's red hot. No. Okay. Red hot news. <laughs> hot off the presses. Uh, this Saturday night, I'll be... Uh, I kickstarted. Uh, me and my friend John Isaac Waters, who's an incredibly talented musician, and, and the three of us go to church with. Um, he had this... He's had a couple records now, but he had some new songs that we've been talking for a while about my directing a music video for him. And we talked about some aesthetics and had some, had some kind of visions in our head that lined up and found the right song. And so we mounted a Kickstarter campaign to, to fund um, the shooting of this video. And thank God that was successful. We, we went down to the wire. Unlike our friend Josh here, we did not have two days to spare. (laughs) Um, And uh, that's nerve wracking. It really was. Um, and I, I put in just a little to kick us over the edge, but it was very small, thankfully. Uh, and yeah, after after a trying, tough kind of editing process and finding a space, uh, we are doing a video premiere this Saturday night at Lot One in Echo Park, Los Angeles, California, from 6 to 9 p.m. That would be the 14th of April. Uh, it's a premiere of the video, and it's also an art opening uh, because in the process of making the video, we made a bunch of art pieces, um, which sort of doesn't make sense at this very moment. But <laughs> once you see the video, and we will put it up online after the premiere, um, it will make sense that there are you know, these artifacts that we made that we didn't expect to like, but we, we ended up liking them quite a bit and wanting to do an art show for them. So we finally found the right space, and we're excited to be doing that. Um, what else is going on? I just finished a, a web series today that's going to be... Well, I think I finished it. It's been uh, a somewhat um, convoluted shooting process, but it's called The Unknown, um, and it's going to be the first uh, the first original long-form content for the internet station Crackle, mm-hmm. which is like Hulu, but apparently a little a little bit more low rent. Um, uh, yeah. Is that about right? Is. That's okay. about right. Um, and uh, that was an amazing experience just because of, again, the people, like the executive producers are guys who write for one of my favorite shows, Sons of Anarchy. And the director is Martha Coolidge, who has directed a dozen awesome movies, one of which is arguably the most important movie of my childhood, Real Genius, mm. starring a young Val Kilmer. Um, and it was really fun to, to geek out and tell my director that you know I was, I was in love with her movie when I was five. No, maybe more like eight. I don't know. Um, and so that'll be a lot of fun. If they get more episodes on that, I'll, I think I'm, it's going to be sort of a recurring, uh, bad boy, uh, bad guy, bad guy, <laughs> nemesis. He's thing. A, not a bad boy, boy, bad guy, leather jacket. Yeah. Popped collar. Yeah. And then, um, I actually don't think I can talk about the amazing actors on that show. Cause they're, I think some of them are, 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 biggish stars and they sort of want to use that for the marketing blitz as they get closer but okay. it was a joy a real joy to work with some 
some great actors who again were amazing people and, and then, when when is that going to be uh going up sometime yeah, in the future I don't know. like probably yeah they they did it block block shooting format they shot all six episodes of their initial format mm-hmm. of their uh, initial order at once and so they've got a lot of editing to do. Okay. But yeah, I will I will update you and you can update folks. Yeah, you tweet and I'll retweet. How about there that? There we go. That works. All right. That's how they do it. Okay. So uh we're gonna take a break. Mm. And then when we come back, we will talk about the John Hillcote film, The Proposition. So stay tuned. <laughs> enjoyed that break as much as i did that was exhausting so okay so we were talking about uh a film that i love it was my favorite movie of that year uh that is uh, 2006 at least that's when it was released in the u.s it is an australian film it is called the proposition which is it was directed by john hillcote and it was written by nick cave of nick cave and the bad seeds a musician man what was that? And Grinder Man, and what have you? A billion other, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if I'd say I love Nick Cave, but I really do. I like him a lot. Uh, and when I heard that he, and of course he does music for it as well. Uh, when I heard that he had written the film, I thought that's okay. That's interesting. I had no idea he was a writer at the time. That was a surprise to me because I knew I knew his music, but yeah, I was like, oh. And while. A lot of his songs tend to have stories to them, uh, often dark and violent stories. Um, <laughs> you know, there is a difference between a five to seven minute song and a two hour film. And so my, there's always a suspicion when you see someone like that. It seems to be jumping, jumping genres. You're like, I don't yeah. know if this is your thing. Like yeah. When Madonna wants to direct a movie or something like that. You're like, I, you know. Yeah, turned out different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's (laughs) movie careers took a different path, and just that idea of like, of like, oh, look who's got himself a little vanity project. That's nice. Um, So yes, I was a bit cynical, but and I I don't think I had heard of John Hillcote at the time. But I looked at the cast. Why would you? He'd only done like Australian music videos and commercials, I think. But that's the thing is. It's strange because I love Australian music videos. I know. That's a joke. I thought you would have seen those. <laughs> so um, I was trying to come up with an does. Australian band. He just trolls band. the internet for the latest <laughs> Australian commercials. Oh, where are they? I can't but, think of an Australian band off the top of my head. Are the Pet Shop Boys Australian? Weren't they English? I don't know. There's something. I think they're not English. American. I can't remember. That's the first Men place I went. Men at work. Men there at work. Go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> 
Um, so, but that's the thing is that's that's worth noting. Can we do that, one like, of these on the Charlie Sheen movie Men at Work. <laughs> Charlie oh, Sheen, one of Emilio one of the uh, garbage hand, collecting yeah. movie. Uh that you've said everything I know about that film, <laughs> and it's just like, hey, Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez, they're uh, working together. Mm, Men yeah, are working family. together. Family. All right. Don't jump to it yet. Uh, sorry for derailing this episode so soon. <laughs> That's okay. Well, technically, we're a half hour in. So, um, okay. But yeah, so I was a little trepidatious because, okay, uh, a musician wrote a script, found a director that not many people know about to make it happen. Yeah, everything about this seems like a vanity project. Uh, and then I saw the film in Chicago and... Uh, Shy Town. Shy Town, I've heard some people call it. And just so, now. Even. Just now, yeah. It's not an old-timey Quite term. recently. And so, uh, so I saw it in, in Chicago and I really liked it. I would say I loved it. And then I saw it again when I was visiting um, uh, Missouri uh, that summer. And for some reason, it just hit me a certain way. And full disclosure, I was in a weird melancholy mood because the reason that I was back in Missouri was for uh, a friend's funeral. And so I was already kind of in a weird mindset. And for some reason, the mournful, sad tone of that film struck me just right and i have loved that movie ever since um there are times i know it sounds strange and i don't know if uh, you guys can weigh on on this this is a slight tangent but uh, there are some people that when they are happy or how about this when they're sad they will listen to a happy song or they will watch a happy film i've never been one of those i for me, like if I'm feeling sad, well, if I'm feeling happy, I want to watch something happy. But if I'm feeling sad, I want to watch something that shows that I'm not alone in my sadness. That it's not even so much the misery loves company. It's just like it. It's a way solidarity. to feel solidarity. It's a way to feel connected with uh, with your fellow man. Am I alone in that? It no, might sound very you're sad. You're all I just alone said. in your desire for solidarity. Okay, fair enough. I think I might go for it. Well, actually, I don't think I'm this way anymore. But I think I used to like nothing but sad art no matter um. how happy i was at the time <laughs> but now i think i'm more normal like when i'm happy i can go for a little bit of happy art oh okay yeah but yeah when i'm sad always always how would art. you define happy art what do you think it is well i just mean like i don't know i just mean not soul dredging and, okay fair you know, enough tear jerking mm-hmm. okay it's like i'm it's like i'm thrilled uh, i just got married let's throw in schindler's list <laughs> but, from now uh, on every movie that we mention i'm going to classify as either happy art or sad art yeah, okay it's, it's a really effective yeah we should do that yeah it'll be it'll be a teach a film theory class with that <laughs> it could be a book happy art sad art <laughs> yeah. but that's the thing is that you don't write about it it's just one page is like it'd be a the, list yeah. yeah jaws happy art yeah Men at work, happy art. Yeah. Oh, the happiest of arts. <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, so the second time I saw it, I think perhaps because I was in a slightly different mindset, uh, I loved it. But I've seen it several times since then, and I feel like I love it a little bit more every time. Mm. Um, the story is fairly simple, simple enough that uh, I remember one uh, when I worked at Blockbuster, uh, a customer really angered me by dismissing the story as non-existent because it was so simple. Uh, I got very upset. That's neither here nor there. 
Um, so the story is it takes place in Australia in the eighteen in the late eighteen hundreds, and it is for all intents and purposes a western, except west the the term western means the American West. So it's not actually America. So it's not really a Western, strictly speaking, but everything about it is basically that. And so there are these... Do you forget the great other Australian Western, Quigley Down Under? With Alan Rickman and Laura Sangiacoma. No, I didn't forget it. And, <laughs> and Tom stash. Selleck. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget the stash. <laughs> the stash. <laughs> Tom Selleck. Star of, uh, of CSI... Uh, not CSI. CBS... Blue uh, Bloods. Procedural Blue Bloods. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's a, a family of criminals, specifically three brothers, uh, the, the Burns boys, the Burns gang, and the film starts with, uh, two of them being captured by the local authorities and the youngest one is rather simple. I won't say that there's something mentally wrong with him, but he's very young and very naive and oh come on there's he's definitely he's definitely slow mentally. he he's slow but there are moments when he shows a surprising awareness of what is happening mm. i don't know this but is, this is george burns right the burns brothers george george burns oh. edward burns and montgomery burns see montgomery burns <laughs> <sighs> listeners aren't you happy that i brought a co-host on for stuff like that <laughs> hey everybody <laughs> <laughs> you are, you're That's, the you're the Ed McMahon of more than one lesson. Yes, this, this episode I'm the color commentator somehow. I don't know what's going on. I um, have to come up with something of substance to say at some point. I, I have faith it's going to happen. I quote the Bible, and you're like, "You are correct, sir." <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, so the the captain goes to the the older brother and says the older of the two brothers, the other one is, is elsewhere. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to, the, to your youngest brother. I'm going to let you go free. You go seek out and kill your oldest brother, who is, by all accounts, the most dangerous one. You kill him. And if you do that, you and your brother can go free. However, if you don't, then in like, I think a week or two, come Christmas Day, I will execute your younger brother. And so that is the proposition of the title, and uh, that is a rather... Titular. What was that? Titular proposition. That's inappropriate. So, um, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm feeling silly. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. But um, but yeah, and uh, some would say that is rather sadistic uh, of the captain to do, and and I would say that's about right. But what's interesting is over the course of the film, you are able to gain perspective and you actually see the captain is surprisingly forward thinking mm-hmm. in his uh, mm-hmm. law enforcement, uh, uh, you know, choices. So, um, so the, the main character, well, there are basically two main characters. There's the captain and then Charlie Burns, the middle brother played by Guy Pierce. The captain is played by Ray Winstone and, but the main thrust of the story is the middle brother finding his older brother and trying to figure out what it is he's going to do because one of his brothers is going to die and it's all up to him, which one it's going to be essentially. So, um, kind of a bad position to, to be in. Um, but before we talk about some of the, uh, themes of the film, uh, 
I want to ask you guys what you thought of the film specifically. I will talk later about the things that I love about it. But uh, did you guys see this uh, in the theater when it came out or uh, on DVD or, or Blu-ray, if you will? I saw it long afterwards, actually. I think I borrowed it from you. Oh, okay. Maybe two or three years ago. So I, I saw it a while after it had already been out. Okay. And did you did you like the film there, Josh? I enjoyed it, yeah. Okay. Now, our friend Jeff, Jeff Newberg, yeah. Criminal Minds, mm-hmm. and uh, first credited cast member of Criminal Minds. It's my show. I exec produced it. Nice. Wow, they really... <laughs> yeah, I got bumped. Wow. I got bumped up. <laughs> <laughs> They kind of gave away the the whole th- the whole thing there uh, have when a they great cast agent, <laughs> um, and he only takes seven yeah. percent. But um, so we were talking before the show. You are a huge fan of this film. You mm. you requested to be a part of this episode. Well, because honestly, this was the, this honestly, was the film you we mentioned about. a couple of films, and when we were first trying to get together, and I had a I think I had a schedule. We couldn't figure out the schedules. I like this movie so much. I had actually requested to do the other option because I don't know how to talk about this movie hmm. uh, without, I don't know, getting hysterical. All right. Um, and, you, you did know, not needing, include needing that. To, I wish I had known slap that. Slap me and spray water on me like I'm a female in a 1930s movie. That'll be Josh's job. Um, but I yeah, I, I got the chance to see this in the theater when it was in LA and it's kind of short, short run. And I guess it was back when I saw art films in the theaters, uh, when you know when I made the effort. Now I'm just a married guy who doesn't go out. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a real big fan of this movie. And we were talking a little bit before the show about its importance. And it it occurred to me while you were talking just now, Tyler. I, we were talking earlier about its importance to sort of as an influence on me and sort of the. I think you can't watch that movie having if you've read the book Blood Meridian. You can't watch that movie without saying Blood Meridian stamp all over it. Uh, but we were talking about the year, and you know this movie that got made in sort of an initial release, not in the U.S. in '05, and then got what release it did get in the U.S. in '06. I think this movie really put a stamp on the year of the Western in America of 2007 with. Uh, there Will Be Blood, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, a movie that certainly improves every single time you watch it. Mm, and it's, it's probably now my favorite movie of that year. Hmm. Um, so, the yeah, Assassination, uh, There Will Be Blood, and No Country for Old Men, all being in 07, sort of the year of the Western uh, in, in America. I think it really had a lot to do with that. And you can see the direct influence in, in Nick Cave's acting part in Assassination of Jesse yeah. James. Mm-hmm. As the balladeer. And he also um, does the score for that film. It's one of the most beautiful scores I've ever heard. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that movie, the, I think the proposition was sort of his audition for Assassination of Jesse James, but also, I, th- I think it, infl- I mean, just talking to filmmakers and writers, and I, it's it was a movie that barely got seen by anybody, um, but the people, the people who saw it, I think were really impacted by it. You know, it's interesting because... Uh, there's there's a handful of critics that I that I regularly read that uh, after I see I try not to read them before I see a movie because I don't like my view to be tainted. But the minute I see it, I will see what they have to say, and uh, I tend to like there there are, I think three critics that uh, 
review movies for the Onion AV Club that I enjoy quite a bit. I, I find I agree with them. I like their writing style. Um, and I think one of them reviewed the proposition, gave it a C-, which surprised me because most everybody likes this movie. Um, most most every critic likes this movie. Do you remember some of the criticisms that came along with that? C-? Yeah, they they C- said that C plus or C minus. I don't remember what you said. C minus. C minus. Yeah, oh. that's almost a D plus. Close. But uh, yeah, and so I think it was. They said something to the effect of the way the film uses violence and the way it seems to revel in its violence and, and make Ooh. no real comment on it. Wow. Uh, it's been a while since I've read the review. I wish that I had uh, read it in in uh, preparation for this, but I wasn't planning on talking about it. But I remember reading that and saying, like, I could not agree less with yeah. that interpretation of this film. Ditto. Like, it is very violent. There is yes. no question about that. But I feel like it's a film that is, I would say, bleak, but not quite hopeless. I would say the film has a dark dark view of humanity but a deep understanding of its characters mm-hmm. and understands that the more frankly the more graphic the violence the the more we are put into the world of these characters and i think the more we sympathize and at the same time don't sympathize like when we mm-hmm. see the br- brutality that these characters live with it's like, oh my gosh, this is awful. I feel bad for anybody that has to live in this circumstance. But then you realize that some of these characters are the ones that actually perpetrate that. And you're like, oh, I don't like that at all. Like, It needs to be that graphic. But what's more is I feel like the fact that it is that graphic means that it is – I feel like that in itself is a, com- is a comment on the violence of Westerns because what, the Western genre is probably not – not the most violent, but one of the most violent genres out there because that's how the West was won is through horrendous violence. Well, and, and the stereotypical Western, like the old Western, like Gunsmoke or something like that, there's a lot of people getting shot and there's no blood and there's, yeah. no, there's like a lot of violence without any being real violence. And a gunshot's more like... of an inconvenience than anything else. <laughs> oh, no, he's gone down. <laughs> He'll be back up. But uh, those, those seem to err a little bit too much, maybe more on the side of reveling in the violence where it's kind of a... Mm-hmm. Go get an exciting thing where everybody, you know, you go out and you shoot those engines before yeah. they make it to the wagon train. But I, I feel like the vi- I, the violence that I remember from the proposition is is meant to be horrific, and I think it's seen that way. Yeah, it's a lot of old time westerns, and I I don't think there's been one in the last thirty or forty years, really, since like the Wild Bunch and Bonnie and Clyde, that will not show consequence less violence you know and so and this is one that i think i think it's right up there with like unforgiven by in showing that these are real bullets in a rather i wouldn't say that that was a primitive time but like you know a bullet was this hard lead ball that just got you know blasted into your body and did a whole bunch of damage wild wild west there's one (laughs) the whole time i was trying to think of something that's that's a western that's just i feel like that's less a western than a waste of time (laughs) i feel like it defies genre that's in the waste of time genre yeah i I can't speak intelligently on this subject sadly i haven't seen 
the American cinematic classic, Wild Wild West. I feel uh, like that's the only way you can speak intelligently on the subject because you didn't see it. Yeah, right. I, you're, you're dumber for having no, seen no it. No question. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, and so I, I don't know, there, there was a, the one-two punch for me in 2005 and 2006. My favorite movies from both of those years were incredibly violent. In 2005, it was a history of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2006, it was the proposition. And, and I remember, I feel like those movies were instrumental in my, you know, in my current attitude about movie and television violence, which is, if you're going to do it, do it. And the, and actually, the more like the more you do it in a certain way, the less glorifying and the less glamorous it is. Mm-hmm. It just becomes this horrible thing. And even though the people that it's happening to are bad guys, as in uh, a history of violence, like it's still like we still get a pretty solid, pretty good idea of the price that it exacts on the soul of the person that is committing the crime, yeah. or or even if it's just self defense, the idea that. That like oh this is a life that is no longer there mm-hmm. uh, you really feel every death I've, I've felt the same way about it. i think scorsese films were what did that for me a little bit there's a consequence to the violence there's a consequence to the violence although oddly enough that's one of the reasons i'm not a big fan of uh the departed which came out the same which nice. was released in the u.s same year as uh the proposition um i think in the the last few deaths there are consequences and we yeah. feel those but up until then i feel like it's mostly used as a not necessarily a punchline, but I don't I'm, know. I think I'm thinking more earlier Scorsese. I forget Probably, that yeah. he made movies like The Aviator and The Departed, which some people love, and that's great. I, I, to me, it doesn't it doesn't seem so much like the same filmmaker who made Taxi Driver or even Goodfellas. No. I do. Uh, by the way, I do own both The Aviator and The Departed because I find them to be immensely watchable. But as far as my favorite movies, they are far from them. Yeah, I think The Departed is super watchable. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Josh. Like more more than all, most long career filmmakers, Scorsese feels like two different filmmakers. Mm. I mean, I'd, I'd say the same about plenty of people, but not to that extent. Yeah. Okay, I mean, can you imagine the same guy made mean Hugo and, and Mean Streets? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. It's, Which is good. I mean, I think I think at some point you've got to evolve. And honestly, I don't know about you guys, but by the time Casino came around, I was like, again. Like really, Goodfellas too. Yeah. yeah. So it's no, like, I was. Goodfellas I mean, was I was kind of like. I'm, I think it was probably the right move on his part artistically. It's. I don't. I don't feel like he sold out commercially or something. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he's no. he was making films that interested him, and there's apps, and I don't. I don't begrudge him that. I mean, there's still. He's still a virtuoso filmmaker as far as uh, you know the visual quality of of his films. He's still like I didn't even like Hugo, but I can still say like that was beautiful mm-hmm. and uh it's really the story and characters that i have a problem with mm. but um but that's look that's not what we're talking about <laughs> right right back on track yeah josh what are you trying to do to me i'm sorry all right um but i do want to talk a little bit about because um because i don't want to only talk about the in the josh's vo- defense he did present you with that giant 10 million dollar check earlier yes you know which, what which is just sitting there in the corner I can't find a giant bank. Now it's my fault. <laughs> That's the only place that will cash a giant check is a giant bank. So, um, but I don't want to talk about the film only in context of its violence, although that is 
what most people come away with. Um, I do think that its art direction is... Yikes. Th- this is a, in many ways, like I said, it's bleak. I mean, you get a really strong sense of how hot and miserable it is to live in this place. <laughs> Stinky. Flies everywhere. Flies everywhere. <laughs> what, did they, what did they put on those actors to get halos of flies? I mean, they were like putting bacon grease in hair and stuff. I know they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it just looked just horrendous and like the the ramshackle uh houses and structures of the town yeah and just the fact that, that it, butcher shop remember that oh, butcher shop yeah like in the hot sun just oh. this tin cut tin roof butcher shop mm, but that's me. the thing is the i mean listen to the way we're describing it yeah. like we feel it like mm. it they create this it's is not visceral a, it's visceral is the way to describe it. Like we yeah, really much do. viscera in that movie. <laughs> it is indeed visceral. But uh, but yeah, and but for me, the thing that I think uh, resonated the most with me was uh, the characters and specifically the actors, because um, I think I'm a big fan of Ray Winstone, and I would venture to say yeah. I think this is my favorite performance of his. I might say the same. Uh, Guy Pierce. I love his performance. I'm not sure if I'd say it's my favorite, but he's been in a lot of movies that I love. Mm-hmm. L.A. Confidential, Memento, this. Uh, I don't necessarily love The King's Speech, but I think he's very good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the upcoming film Lockout. The Time Machine. <laughs> now we've started to make fun of him. Um, <laughs> look, everybody's got to pay the bills. But uh, but yeah, and so um, so I think I, I like what he He has does, a weird but- way of doing it, though, man. He makes nothing but art films, yeah. and then he just like it's like he throws up his hands when the big check comes, without regard to like, well, if I do the time machine, it will ruin my other opportunities to make a big movie for a long time. <laughs> Maybe I should do a big movie that also has some commercial upside. <laughs> anyway, I I should really bad bad mouth actors <laughs> that I respect a lot. That's a good idea. I wonder if he just does it in a way. I, that's the thing is, you know, Proposition probably didn't pay very much. I'm sure Memento didn't. I'm sure LA Confidential didn't even pay that much. Mm. Um, certainly at the time, because nobody really knew who he was. But um, but I almost wonder if if with uh, Guy Pierce, if he just does these films because he has to, almost confident that because of movies like The Proposition and LA Confidential and all of that, if uh, people will just give him the benefit of the doubt. Where it's just like, oh, uh, I don't like that time machine movie. Except for the time travel sequence, by the way, which is awesome. Well, the worst, I mean, it, it is, not only is it a ridiculous thing for me to badmouth an actor that I respect the, the pants off of, um, but also it's ridiculous knowing the process to judge anyone on their decision to go into a project based on what we know of the final product. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. nobody really knows nothing about yeah. what something's actually going to turn out to be. And yeah. I honestly, knowing him, knowing what I know of his work that I love, he probably did the time machine. Cause he thought it, he thought it was going to be awesome. Yeah. Well, you hear even directors like, we'll we'll make some kind of, you know, project. And then at the end, at the end, they'll be like, this isn't at all what I wanted it to be. That's why their directors cut sometimes. So like the fact that even a director can see his movie ruined in the post-production process means that how can an actor know? Right. I mean, with some things uh, you you probably should know better, but most stuff, it's hard to say. By and large, I actually don't 
like I, I really love Guy Pierce and I, and so I don't actually judge him for what he did because no. in this like well and the time be, machine's not this the, the worst right. movie in the world either you yeah know. and uh nor is this uh well i haven't seen the upcoming film lockout it looks terrible but it doesn't look like it's his fault let me ask you does it have adam sandler playing himself and his sister man i gotta see that movie the way people talk about it <laughs> the way people talk about that movie is like it's 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 just something to be behold. We are, of course, talking about the movie Spanglish. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, that's what I do. That's really the one joke I've got. So, anyway, Guy Pierce, I think, has a... He is ostensibly the lead of the proposition, and I think he has a very difficult job because his character doesn't do a lot of talking. Almost everybody else does more talking than he does. The strong, silent type if you will. And and some of the other characters in this film are, uh, especially Danny Houston's, that's one mm-hmm. of the ones that, sp- that stuck out the most to me in the, in the film. Like he's almost a larger than life character. So then to be playing op- opposite mm-hmm. that, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a difficult role. And you mentioned Danny Houston. Danny Houston might be my favorite performance in there because it's a larger than life role that he manages to sell by being, he's not necessarily a quiet character, but he's not, He's I not mean, flamboyant or over the top about it. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, everything about him, they, they build him up in the same way they build up, say, Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Um, and so you expect this monster. And he is monstrous, but not in the way he, be- not, not in the way he acts, but in the things that he does. Mm. In the way that he acts, he seems like just a, just a regular guy. Um, so, and, and Danny Houston is somebody that I've, I remember liking for, for a while, but I don't think he'd had any... No, he'd been in a couple of, of uh, notable things. He was in a film called Silver City that I liked. Um, he was... Oh, man. Something... Ex- like a really independent film called like XTC or like Arthur's Ecstasy or something like that. He was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for it. But this is... This, like, I think got the recognition of, of a lot of people. And now he's he's been in a lot more, lot more things. But I thought he was wonderful in it. Finally, a chance for the Houstons. I know. But I feel like he's not like a Houston Houston, is he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, he's John Houston's yeah. son. Yeah, Yeah, it must have been tough coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Being overshadowed But once by... again, to badmouth an actor I love. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's just keep doing that. That's good for my career, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, that performance blows my mind. I think he's awesome in yeah. that. And I say that as uh, trying to find a way not to put this too nuts and boltsy for, you know, everybody who's not an actor like everybody but me, that is. Um, you know, he generally speaking, his performances that, you know, I've, I've been watching over the last years, he's, he's, a, he's a character actor and he's a very technically minded actor. And uh, I sort of come from the more organic uh, side of things that wants to try to catch lightning in a bo- bottle and if it's not there it's not there and if it is it is and you just keep shooting until it is um, and I think those two camps sort of look down their noses at one another um, the the sort of the typical example would be Olivier being the, mm-hmm. the prime example of a technical actor and Brando being the changing of the guard toward um, you know the, the organic school and having said all that uh, I, I think uh, that 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 performance by Houston, I think, is really really something. It's it's funny and dark and weird, and yeah, I like it a lot. And there is a, a a show 
coming up on the Stars Network called I think Magic City, yeah, in which in he that. plays in which he plays a like a Miami gangster in the 1960s, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I bet he's really good. That I wish I had stars. I don't. Yeah, yeah I'm looks, excited about that show. That looks intriguing to me. I'm kind of kind of wish I could see that show. <laughs> um, and then I did want to mention a couple other. Uh, I think Emily Watson has a very difficult role. She plays uh, Ray Winston's wife. She's the pretty much the only female in the film with any kind of uh, notable Who's role. not an Asian prostitute who gets shot within <laughs> like two seconds? I think those... P- you know, those characters are important. I think they set the scene. They sure did. But, and so it'd be easy in a film that is very violent uh, and to look at her scenes and they could have been boring, almost like, oh, let's just get through the stuff with this whiny, with this whiny wife who's talking about her friend who was raped and murdered. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Now back to the action. And uh, the fact that it is not that is a is very much it's a testament to the director and 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 uh but also her performance and i feel like she has a great a surprising amount of chemistry with uh ray winston like you really feel like these two people love each other and you don't run across that very often i had such a strange experience with you know like i think i haven't said it explicitly but it seems implied that this this movie i've had a relationship with this movie watching it a couple times a year for the six years it's been in my life Longer than my wife. Um, that was weird. Uh, and when I first watched it, I am such a such a long time fan of Ray Winstone and uh, Emily Watson individually. Uh, and I'm I'm a fan of both their performances in this movie individually. But the first, I'd say, few times I watched it, there was this weird feeling for me that when they were in the same room together, acting together, there was this weird thing in between them. There was some kind of kryptonite going on because they were both such powerful actors and they were canceling each other out or something. But the the more I watched that movie, the 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 more I love that energy in those scenes. I mean, Ray Winstone, I mean, he always does it great. I think Sexy Beast is even a better example of it, but <laughs> the man is so good at being afraid. <laughs> and and I don't say, you know, again, this is sort of my organic snobbishness that I alluded to earlier. I don't say acting afraid. That the man is so good at living fear through every pore and drop of sweat. Like, that he has it in the weirdest places in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, in these scenes that are just with his wife. And before, like, the third act of where, like, they're obviously in grave danger... Even then, he's still, you know, and there's the there's the shakes from the drug addiction and stuff that play into it. But there's this immense level of anxiety in Winstone's character that that it's sort of um, Emily Watson's character's job to allay. And there's so much formality mm-hmm. in their in their relationship because there's this tension of trying to tame and domesticate this wild place and their and their home is a formal place and she wears these amazingly formal dresses and she has yeah. this alabaster skin and yeah that those their scenes together are and and then to see that home shattered in the in the penultimate scene is yeah is uh, what a crazy ride their relationship and their scenes alone together give us uh in in juxtaposition to every other scene in that wild movie yeah and it's and it would have been so easy to make make him be his character be like uh, and this is a function of the writing it would have been easy to make his character sort of a lout who has who dragged Mm -hmm. his wife here 
for his own career. She doesn't like it here, and maybe she and re- she resents him, and they don't have real a really good relationship. And you could have used that as a comment on the kind of person he is. Mm-hmm. But instead, the film wants to you know hu- it humanizes him by making her actually love him and mm-hmm. care about him, and he cares very much about her. You can tell, and just. But yes, at the same time, Ray Winstone, and you're right, he does it in Sexy Beast as well. Like, you can just see a little thing, like, in his eyes, or like when his nostrils flare a certain way. It's just like, man, this guy knows that all hell is about to break loose, (laughs) and there's nothing he can really do about it except be, you know, maintain a constant state of readiness. Um, And, uh, and that's what makes, like, it's such it's such a moment of humor because he is tr- trying to maintain this readiness when he does finally get ambushed in the final scene, and his not only is his gun like five feet away, he doesn't even get like one foot toward it. I'm sorry, yeah. we're doing spoilers, right? That's cool, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in it's general, just like people don't watch them until they've seen the movie. Anyway, yeah, yeah, there we go. Okay, there we go. Yeah, he's just he's sort of this. In a way, this lovable... He's almost a Keystone cop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in, in, the lo- in one of those lost Keystone cop movies where there's incredible violence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was... Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, and, and yeah, it is interesting to see that he... That he really is... F- he's fighting alone. Mm-hmm. Like, his own... The guys who work under him don't respect him. The guy that he's a, the bureaucrat that he's accountable to, played wonderfully by David Wenham, I think. Um, you know, he doesn't respect him. Like he, it's really just him and his wife. And in and in that first scene when he's finally when he's making the proposition to to Guy Pierce, you really get a sense of this man's power, and then you realize, oh, he really doesn't have a lot of power, mm-hmm. um, and that he's just constantly struggling and striving, sometimes against other people, sometimes against himself. And it's a wonderful performance, and and I think Emily Watson just really buys into the the reality of their relationship and doesn't try to comment on it. Instead, just this, you know, my husband loves me, I love him, and that's the really that's the only thing we know at this point. That's the only thing we can really hang our hat on because the world we live in is horrendous. Um, so we've talked we've talked mostly about the you know the the artistic uh, elements of the film. I do think it's, and we talked about the art direction a little bit. I do think it's beautifully shot. Um, it's one of those movies I'm constantly pausing yeah. to look at, to look <laughs> at frames. Yeah. Like the, my goodness. We talked about this very briefly uh, when you, when you first arrived and you were taking a look at my uh, DVD collection. Judging. What was that? Judging you. Judging. Uh, you know what? I can't say as I blame you. Um, I judge myself on my DVD collection. It's far too small, but uh, the, when I first got a Blu-ray player, I remember thinking like, I, you know, I really don't want to make a lot of, I don't want to rebuy stuff just because I got a Blu-ray. Like DVD is fine for me. There are a handful of films. It's like, I'll rebuy that on Blu-ray. And the proposition is one of them because I feel like being crystal clear and like on a, on a good TV, like it's a film that just needs to be seen as, as, you know, as beautifully as possible yeah. because it's surprising that a film as horrendous as this can be as beautiful as it is, but it manages to be. Um, so I do want to, uh, move on to talk about, uh, some of the themes of the film, which we'll discuss before we get into the companion film or films. 
there is as as we uh, I think as Josh threw out. I don't remember if, which which of you it was. I think it was Josh who threw out the word family. Nice. <laughs> and uh, and I may and we made reference to it very briefly uh, in the last episode that that would be uh, one of the themes of this film. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating about the character of Arthur Burns, played by Danny Houston, is that as I said, he's he's quite monstrous in the things that he does, but he's also he has an appreciation for poetry, and he can he has an appreciation for beauty as well. Um, it's not at all unusual to see him staring at the sunset, just mm-hmm. quietly with the wind sweeping over him and just, just really, I don't know, pondering things. And, uh, as in, in the midst of, of, uh, one such, uh, scene, Arthur says, he says, love, love is the key love and family for what are night and day, the sun, the moon, the stars without love. And those you love around you, what could be more hollow than to die alone unloved? So he's talking about love. He's also talking about family and the people that you love and how that's very, very important. Uh, there's another scene where uh, he is he has confronted somebody violently, and this person that he's talking to has been shot, and the person uh, starts saying a poem. And he says, there's night and day, brother, both sweet things, sun and moon and stars, all sweet things. And quiet, there's a wind on the east. Life is very sweet, brother. And then I'll skip some lines. And then Arthur says, he says, a beautiful sentiment, sir, but you're not my brother. And then he stabs the man. Um, Mm. And I feel like that's a very notable scene as well, because to him, you're not my brother is the precise it, that's exactly the thing he would say right before he stabbed somebody in the chest mm. um because to him that's that is everything and everything else is nothing and in what i think is a beautifully written uh exchange uh arthur and two members of his gang are sitting on their horses talking about what it means to be a misanthrope mm-hmm. and and the rather dim-witted youngest member of his gang, not one of his brothers, but uh, just a, somebody else that's dim-witted, um, he says, uh, "He says, oh, misanthropes, is that what we are? And Arthur says, good Lord, no, we're a family. <laughs> because to him, to be one means you're not the other. If, you are, if you're a family, then how could you hate humanity? Look at these people I love. Now, I believe they say that shortly before they kill and they they go and slaughter a group of uh, soldiers. So, and it's, I mean, it's, it's not in terms of the character's perspective, but in terms of the filmmaker's perspective, it's certainly delivered as a joke. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, There's, there's irony there, but, uh, and in that moment it's, it's rather humorous, but you know, some of the other lines that I've, that I've said, uh, he says in all seriousness and the film takes it takes mm-hmm. him at his word that this is what he finds important mm-hmm. and one of the things that i as i don't know over the last few years i find myself as a christian becoming fascinated by certain things artistically and also just as far as culture goes and one of the things you will find over and over in film uh and we mentioned it last episode with moneyball there's an emphasis on you know what you're spending too much time at work you're working too much. You got to be spending time with your family. Family's what it's all about. Uh, that goes all the way down to, I think, 
films that aren't even aren't even as much trying to teach us a theme. I feel like that's a that's a uh, Hollywood theme when they're like, we need we, this movie needs to have a theme. Like, all right, we're making a Peter Pan movie. Let's throw in a theme of he needs to spend more time with his kids. So yeah, that's, that's like that's in Hook. Even though, yeah. like, what does that have to do with Peter Pan? It's like <laughs> it's like a standby Hollywood theme that they yeah. throw into movies a lot. I don't know how many movies there are of like somebody's wife throwing or kids throwing away their cell phone. It's like you know that cell phone more than I. it's like happened so many times. So like, there's that amazing episode of Saved by the Bell. <laughs> the- Zach Morris cell phone episode. Come on, guys. <laughs> I um don't know what to say maybe we should go to a break um but uh yeah so it's on saved by if it's on saved by the bell then it's part of culture (laughs) right um it's a major part of culture i would say uh, but that just goes to show like what you were saying it is a common theme in hollywood just to say that you should be spending more time with your family and it's a common theme in culture and i think it's regular it's not at all unusual to find it in church as well and in the, the christian culture which is you got to put your family first. I mean, they're they're, and this is often, by the way, directed at men. Um, I think at women as well, but it does seem to be considered more of a male problem. Um, and so there are there there are a, a lot of books written for men, basically saying your job isn't going to define you. You know, get away from that and really embrace your family. And there's nothing wrong with family, by the way. I'm, I'm all in favor of it. I'm not coming out against the family. And I, and I want to say that first because everything that I'm going – not everything, but if you, if you take what, I'm about, what we're about to talk about the wrong way, uh, you could make it sound like I'm saying family, who cares? Um, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that just as – just just as it is possible to elevate your job to an unhealthy level, it's also possible to elevate something as good. And there's nothing wrong with a job, by the way. It's a good thing. But it's just as possible to elevate your family, something else that is good, to an unhealthy point as well. Really, family to the exclusion of all else. And... um and I think that's what that's what Arthur does, and that is what Charlie uh, Guy Pierce's character. That is what he is struggling with: is this loyalty? Because if Arthur has these loyalties, chances are Charlie does as well. My guess is it was, you know, put into them by their parents, mm-hmm. um, and so he has to fight against that. And and it's worth noting that as the film starts, Charlie and Mikey, the youngest, they're not with Arthur. The the gang has split up. And it seems to be for philosophical reasons. Charlie seems to really not like what Arthur has been doing, specifically with the brutality and and that sort of thing. And so he's sort of at a crossroads insofar as, well, what is more important? Is it family or is it maybe general humanity and general decency? Or is there something bigger than family? Mm -hmm. Is that what my brother has been using as an excuse for his inhumane behavior? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and and family can be, uh, I guess in this in this example, family becomes an idol, which anything, yeah. uh, almost anything, can become an idol. In these uh, other books and things you've read, work can become the idol, mm-hmm. or or you know, money can become the idol. In a lot of churches, we talk about that sort of thing. But um, 
family just as much can be an idol whenever it's something that become that comes above God or above uh, or or I guess in this situation uh family becomes something that you use to supersede uh God's commandments. Mm-hmm. And so I so I've got we've got a lot of verses to get through. We will not necessarily read all of them uh in a row, but I'll I'll cover several of them right now. Um because the Bible does have good things to say about family. I don't want to make it sound like it's only uh anti-family. Uh here's a couple of verses from Proverbs. The first is Proverbs 15 verse 20, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Proverbs 11 verse 29, he who brings trouble on his family will inherit only wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise. So those are just a couple off the bat. There are many, many, if you, if you, let's say you, as I did, Google Bible verses about family, you'll find a running theme of don't go against your family. (laughs) Um, However, honor your father and mother. That's one. It's up there. What is it? I think that's one of the 10. No. I don't know. But I'll tell you another one of the 10 is you shall have no other gods before me, which is Exodus 23, which was the next thing here. I'm glad you brought that up. Good job, Josh. Um, You did something right, man. (laughs) I know. I'm a regular Encyclopedia Brown of (laughs) podcasting. Uh, This thing is starting to pay off. (laughs) So... um, I was on the fence for a while, <laughs> but, um, but that's the thing is no other gods before me. And ultimately if, if you are, if, if Arthur is able to ignore general morality, but say that it's all okay because it's all about his family, then what you're saying is family is the most important thing, more important than right and wrong and more important than God himself. Not that the film is particularly religious. In fact, it's, the opposite, uh, maybe. Yeah, I think it's atheistic. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I, nihilistic. Actually, yeah, I, I'd say it's like relatively um, atheistic, as in atheistic in a relative sense. Mm-hmm. As in, God exists; He just doesn't exist in Australia. <laughs> like, I, I, I seriously feel like that. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's like a serious worldview on the part of the filmmakers. I think it's it's sort of the premise of the movie. Well, well, I, I think that's that's an aesthetic that exists, like in in other films yeah, as well. Yeah, the exactly. idea of like the godless place, you yeah. Know? Well, and you'll find in like High Plains Drifter, where uh, uh, Clint Eastwood literally paints a town red and calls it hell mm. to frighten people. And at the beginning of the proposition, Ray Winstone says, "Australia, what fresh hell is this?" Uh, a character played quoting quoting a poem that wasn't written yet. Uh-oh. What a little little snafu! So they're implying that Ray Winstone will go on to write that poem. Uh, I guess <laughs> I, for, I forgot, but yeah, that poem was written in the early 1900s. Um, mm. Maybe it was just uh, maybe everybody just knew the poem, and one guy just took the yeah he got all the credit exactly. Guy, um, I forgot. And so, uh, but then also um, a, a, char- a a character played by John Hurt, who's wonderful yeah. in the film. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I did not write his name down. I'm sorry. The character's name is Jelen Lamb. He's a bounty hunter and he is delightful. And John Hurt is clearly having a lot of fun playing him. Yeah, he does. Um, and I believe Roger Ebert says that the character just gives the impression of having been left out in the sun a little too long. Um, but he talks about how he used to be a man who prayed, but then he came to oh, Australia right, yeah. and the God in me just, 
evaporated. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'd say that is maybe one of the one of the aspects of the film is that like there's no God in this place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and that is a theme maybe worth exploring. Uh, but at the moment, that is not the theme we are discussing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so. So the Bible says, like, these things are important. And in the same way that, like, money, like, people so frequently uh, misquote, like, money is the root of all evil. Slow down. I believe it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Of all kinds of evil, I think, is is even more specific. All kinds. All kinds. Good kinds. Bad kinds. It takes all kinds. Is that what it takes? I don't know. I always wonder what it I heard it, it takes a village. That's from State and Maine. Um, that is a mammoth line, if ever there was one, except yeah. there's no swearing. So, uh, but that's, and so there's nothing inherently wrong with money, but if money becomes the ultimate thing, then, then all kinds of evil come out of it. And in the same way, uh, in Luke 14 verses 25 through 27, these are Jesus own words that are, by the way, frequently taken out of context. Um, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning them, turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, words like hate are pretty big. God, uh, Jesus does not use them very often. And so I have seen, I've regularly, uh, seen online people quote that and just say oh look how look how vaguely cultish this is Hmm. and not even vaguely he says to leave behind your family and follow him that's very uh scientology-esque if you if you ask me um but that's the thing is the bible is meant to be taken as a whole and if you see some of the many verses in the old and new testament that emphasize the importance of of family and loving your family and sticking by your family, why would Jesus say that? Is he trying to negate all that? Well, he does quote scripture regularly, so he seems to value it. So my guess is he's speaking about a, a very specific kind of of hate and maybe not using it the way we so regularly use it. Just this idea of, and it seems to be more the idea of if if anything is in front of our relationship with Christ and our relationship with God, then you can't actually be a disciple because this thing is more important. This thing is what's taking your, this is your identity. This is your self definition. Um, and the only way to be a real, you know, a real disciple is to put Christ first in everything, which is not easy to do by the way. Um, for for all you beginners out there. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, well, pretty much for everybody, because I think there are some people who sometimes forget that, uh, I don't know, I think some people, including myself at times, will say like, oh, no, Jesus is absolutely the most important thing to me. But, you know, uh, the three of us, we were all married, and I one of my absolute worst fears is if my wife were to die, and I start oh. to think like, if my wife died, like, I would go like crazy. Not literally crazy, but I would have a rough time of it. And I would, there's no question I'd be mad at God, but like it would really throw me into a tailspin. Mm -hmm. Now I like to think that I would lean on God and he is, you know, what, what would get me through it. But at the same time, like it's, it's hard to know, like when you have the, 
something that's incredibly important to you, if that thing suddenly gets taken away or the idea of it, uh, of it being taken away, if that comes up and you find yourself like completely without any anchor, you come to realize, oh, that is the most important thing in my life, yeah. more so than God. Um, and I'm not saying that if, if our wives were to die, we should be like, hey, I've got God, no problem, you know, but, you know, it's, uh, there's one of the films that I was thinking about uh, uh, being the companion film for the proposition was Touch of Evil, in which mm. Orson Welles' character, who is a corrupt cop, whose methods are terrible, he, it, before the film starts it's revealed that his wife has been murdered and ever since then he hasn't really cared that much about the law and you get the impression that he was a good upstanding person and then had this thing taken away from him and suddenly if that's gone nothing else matters and so go ahead. That, then i feel like i'm derailing us a little bit also but another another one i just watched that you lent me today sweet smell of success mm-hmm. and in that mm-hmm. movie uh Bert lancaster's character is supposedly purely motivated by the uh, love for his sister mm-hmm. and that kind of turns him around to do things which even hurt his sister in the process which that might have been an interesting and that is uh and that's worth noting and that'll actually take me into some some uh, quotes here by yes i'm sorry everybody c.s lewis uh i quote him a lot partially because i've read him more than any other theologian and also because i tend to like the way he phrases things Mm. um and specifically in the book the great divorce which i absolutely love um which is a book all about the various things that keep people from worshiping god which i just read recently and i i i'm a big fan that's a it's 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 amazing how with some things he can be so simple about it and say so much and i feel Mm. like that's this that book boils down a lot of problems that that people have yeah with uh with christianity that maybe they don't even realize um have you read the great divorce jeff not since i was a kid okay not since i was a teenager it is uh i think i read it maybe once a year mm. um it's a quick read um but uh in it basically people come from hell up to heaven and whether or not they stay is uh pretty much up to them but the various things that heaven does not offer uh, is why they choose to go back to hell. Um, and in one case, a woman who in life lost her son, she comes up to heaven and the first thing she wants is her son. So much so, and, and the, the angel that is talking to her says, well, you will get your son the minute you stop wanting him first. If you want God, you will get God. But if you want your son more than God, then that is what your God is. And you, it's, it seems paradoxical, but that's the way it is. And she just is so like cruel and, and her general, and and of course it's sad because she lost her son. That's a terrible thing. But she almost, at some point she like demands her son so much so that she would want to take her son back to hell with her. Mm -hmm. Not, not unlike by the way, the, uh, drag me to hell. Like drag me to hell. Uh, yes, exactly. I was going to say like sweet smell of success where uh, seemingly it's all about his sister, mm-hmm. but in fact it's a, it's about him yeah. and his possession of his sister. It's this woman, the possession of her son mm-hmm. so much so that he, she would be willing to 
have her son be in hell than her be without her son. Right. Um, and so I'll, I'll read a couple of uh, quotes here from uh, The Great Divorce right after that little vignette happens. There's something in natural affection which will lead it on to eternal love more easily than natural appetite could be led on. But there's also something in it which makes it easier to stop at the natural level and mistake it for the heavenly. Brass is mistaken for gold more easily than clay is. And if it is finally refuse, and if it finally refuses conversion, its corruption will be worse than the corruption of what you call the lower passions. It is a stronger angel, and therefore, when it falls, a fiercer devil. And then I will uh, throw this. Uh, I'll throw in the the next one as well. There is but one good. That is God. Everything else is good when it looks to Him, and bad when it turns from Him. And the higher and mighty. High, the, and the higher and mightier it is in the natural order, the more demonic it will be if it rebels. It's not out of bad mice or bad fleas you make demons, but out of bad archangels. The false religion of lust is baser than the false religion of mother love or patriotism or art, but lust is less likely to be made into a religion. Um, so I feel like that's bas- that's the theme we're basically coming to is that these are all good things. And these are the things that our culture says, this is the most important thing, but anything that you make into a religion, essentially is what he's saying here. Well, I think, I think it's a really funny, uh, historical comment too, because I think that last sentence is no longer true to our time. Well, that's true in our time. Like it's really easy to make a religion out of lust. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's, but I think it's also much easier for people to look down on that and dismiss it. Mm. Whereas making a religion out of these other things, arts or patriotism or family, it's much more acceptable because who would ever decry, who would ever decry love of family? Nobody. But as we see from the proposition and, and Arthur, not the movie Arthur, <laughs> um, right. the character of Arthur <laughs> in the proposition, um, and our companion when you film. Get lost between the moon and New York City, right? Remember that one? I've not never tracked. seen Arthur. Oh, you should. I see might be Arthur. saying it. In two I meant the actually. old one. Yeah, not yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, not that the old one's a classic. <laughs> it kind of is at this point. It's thir- it it's over fun. thirty years old. It was fun. Um, but uh, but I do want to go into the companion film, and we because of the type of film it is. We don't have to go into too much detail. Not unlike when we brought up Jaws as the companion film last uh, last time. Um, yeah, people have seen The Godfather, and they've seen The Godfather Part Two. You'd think people might have even Probably. suspected that this is what we'd be talking about when talking about a movie where people idolize family. Indeed, and we are, but it's not the key. It's not the primary film we're talking about. But um, yes, and you're right, Jeff. It's it's possible that people haven't seen it and maybe just kind of absorbed it through cultural osmosis. Mm-hmm. My wife has was, not seen. I, it. Well, I was rewatching him last week, and yeah, she was like, "I don't think I've seen Godfather 2. <laughs> hmm. She's like, "Is it the third one everybody hates?" Yes, <laughs> yes, honey, it's the third one. <laughs> um, my I, uh, short sidetrack. My wife watched that movie at and this is when she was living in North Carolina and I was living here. And I talked to her after she saw it and she was like, I didn't like it at all. And I was like, are you kidding me? And she was like very serious about it. She was like, the structure didn't make any sense to me. And I was like, how are we even talking about the same movie? And then we realized that she had only watched the second disc of the movie. Oh. So she, 
I think we figured it out when she said something about it. I mean, it's only like an hour and a half long. And they keep like, talking no, about this Whoa. sunny guy. Yeah. Now. <laughs> and I don't even know who that is. Oh, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, and so, okay, well, then I won't assume that you've seen Godfather Part 2. No, I wasn't trying to do that now. No, it's it's fine. It's You know what? It's one of those things where I've I've surrounded myself with people like me, and I sometimes forget that some people just and I will say that I will say this as much without judgment as possible some people just don't care about movies that are that are older and I guess I understand that I don't understand it but I don't condemn it either um and so well we won't go into we won't go into everything about it cuz those are two very long movies and this episode's already been pretty long in, uh, as it is so yeah, the other it, companion films are The Decalogue, Gone with the Wind, <laughs> and uh, The Entire Old Testament. We're going to get to all those. Yeah. Don't and worry. I, that is a film titled The Entire Old Testament. It didn't do well. <laughs> for, the, for, for the companion film, we're going to discuss the run of Gunsmoke. <laughs> it's a Western. So, um, but yeah, so The Godfather, it's a, it's a mafia uh, story, but... When you you know when you hear stories about uh, director Francis Ford Coppola and what he wanted it to be, he did not want it to be a gangster film. He wanted it to be a film about a family, mm-hmm. um, and that and that is what separated it at the time from other gangster films, mm-hmm. which it was all about the crimes they were committing, not necessarily about the relationships they had with each other and the the strange sense of loyalty. Yeah. Although to them it's not strange because you never go against the family. It is yeah. stated in the film by. The Godfather himself, Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando. Yeah. And they set it up at the beginning of the film because it starts with a wedding. Like, it's a yeah. family it's a family event. And I, I hadn't really thought about it, but I guess a lot of the... There's a lot of scenes that are just at, at the house where, like, they're cooking dinner, they're yeah. eating dinner, or out in the garden. Or a lot of it happens just around this family. So you get, you get a lot of the sense of this family and the way that everyone interacts with each other and that it's a family more than a crime syndicate. You don't, you don't even think of it so much as a crime syndicate. Well, and it's a nice, and it's nice, a a nice visual metaphor that they basically live in sort of a compound. Mm -hmm. And as long as they're there and so many scenes take place there because they don't like to venture out because outside the compound, outside the family, that's where things happen. Yeah. That's where bad things happen. Mm -hmm. That's where you can't control the events. In the compound, with the family, that's where you can finally be at ease. And everybody else, screw them. They're just out to get you. And so, and admittedly, almost every time uh, somebody is outside of the compound, um, they get killed or they get shot at or, you know, wounded or whatever. And so that is the world they're living in. One could say that's the life they chose, mm-hmm. as stated by a. Uh, Lee Strasberg and Godfather Part Two. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so the story, really, the the Godfather trilogy, and yeah, I guess I'll say trilogy. Um, it's about Michael Corleone, who has no interest in being part of the crime aspect of his family, but gets pulled into it out of family loyalty, mm-hmm. and because that he may have had no interest in being a criminal, but he is part of this family. And if this is what is required, then this is what it's going to have to be. Mm-hmm. And and it's just him slowly but surely becoming morally corrupt because he's embracing this mentality of 
my family over everybody else. Which and it's worth noting that pretty much every film, every one of the of the three films ends with him killing everybody except his family. <laughs> ah, except part two, right? No, because key, key diversion from her. Uh, div- is that the right word I'm thinking? Yeah, uh, yeah. Deviation. I think so. Deviation is the one I was thinking. There for. we go. Key deviation from that pattern. And so, um, yeah, because in part two. That's when, oh, and actually in part one, spoilers, I guess, he winds up ordering the death of his brother-in-law because his brother-in-law went against the family in in some way. And so even though his brother-in-law is, you know, it's got brother in there, ah, that in-law, well, the law isn't a big deal to the Corleones. So, um, so because I feel like Tom is going to get it. It does feel like adopted brother. Yeah. Like he's going to get it. But it is worth noting that. Tom is the adopted brother, but they all say he's my brother, but he's also the first one to be excluded as like mm-hmm. consigliere mm-hmm. because he's not actually blood. And that's really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, he even, so Michael kills his brother-in-law in the first one. And in the second one, there is an attempt on his life on his life within the compound, the safe compound. And it turns out that his younger brother, uh, no, I'm sorry, his older brother, the middle brother, Fredo, uh, betrayed him. He didn't pull the tr- trigger or anything, but he let it happen. Right. And so it is that idea that just throws Michael into a tailspin, I think, morally, because it was all about family, but now family has turned on him. And so now, like, Fredo has really, I think, at that point, condemned Michael because at that point, Michael cannot trust anybody and yeah. spends the rest of his life in where family at that point is him. Yeah, because that's especially because his wife gets divorced from him, takes the kids, like, and uh, kind of another key point in in the film that both shows Michael's uh, devotion to family and how he feels like he's being betrayed even by his own family is when his wife uh aborts yeah the the child that they're going to have and she he goes crazy that's almost the angriest you see him in the whole series i think oh yeah like you Um, don't see him yell very often mm -hmm. but in that scene i mean he's you know which is odd when you're talking about al pacino um (laughs) oh young pacino very restrained yeah i know pacino different guy um but uh but you almost feel like uh, in the yelling scenes, he's like, huh, this feels pretty good. Note to self. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you do. You really do. You get that feeling. But uh, use this more. But I don't, I don't want to make fun of Al Pacino because 70s Al Pacino is amazing. You know, I actually only somewhat re- like in the last year did I watch Dog Day Afternoon for the first time. Ooh. And that's astounding. Yeah. There's some awesome, good yelling man. in that one. There's some good yelling Attica. in that one. And Justice for All, good yelling in that one. Attica. Um <laughs> Gattaca, absolutely. So, um, uh, there's that one joke I have again of getting things wrong on purpose. So, um, but yeah, and because that to me is there's nothing wrong with loving your family. There's nothing wrong with treasuring your family, maybe over other people, like being more loyal to your family than to other people. I think that's okay. But once you start to elevate your family to the exclusion of all else, including God and morality and law, 
then like it's really just a matter of t- you're doing it for your own reasons you're doing it for selfish reasons and then it's just a matter of time before you end up like michael the the, the final scene of godfather part 2 is him sitting alone mm-hmm. and just just miserable being <laughs> I mean, really sad he yeah. does <laughs> he doesn't look happy and he's got age makeup on like the implication <laughs> yeah. is that he's been sitting in this chair for years yeah mm-hmm. and um, even if he hasn't been sitting in this chair He's essentially just been sitting in this chair alone for years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, cause, and I think that's, that's what happens when, when, no matter what it is, it could be money, it could be your job, or it could be something that's something like family that is culturally great. You know, you'd be amazed how many people like talk about the values of the Godfather and how, oh, these are, you know, these are good, good old American values. It's like, I guess sort of murder there's a lot of murder in the film because this value that you say is so important is taken to the extreme Hmm. and so um so i feel like that's you know one of the things that we can that we can get out of uh you know both the proposition and the godfather but i want to sum up by bringing this back around to to christ um, we have a fairly long, uh, Bible verse that our good friend, Jeff Newberg of lie to me has volunteered to read. It is Genesis 22 verses one through 12. There's 12 verses. 12 verses He's going to read them all. Maybe not in order. Verse. <laughs> We might lose. We'll go uh, Christopher Nolan uh, following with it, and you can uh, piece it together yourself. Uh, let's just allude to as many short films that <laughs> no one's seen uh, in this in this podcast as possible. Okay, here here it goes. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, "Abraham, here I am." He replied. Then God said, "Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah." Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his own son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Yeah. uh, 
we've made reference to that story before on the show. Um, I absolutely love it. Uh, it is often <laughs> referred to by non-Christians as an example of how malicious God can be. Um, I don't agree because for reasons that I'll, I'll talk about in a moment, but it is worth noting that at the time uh, that this happened, family was really everything. Now family is, you know, you could say family is everything now, but at the time it really was everything. Like if you had a, you know, if you had a son, it meant your name continued, your, your line was unbroken and everything was going to be fine, which is why it's so often repeated your only son, Mm, because if Abraham sacrifices Isaac, his line is broken. And that means his family is pretty much done. And the promise in Isaac was that the family would continue forever to grow. Yeah, they had a lot of eggs in that basket. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so by God saying, all right, I've given you this thing, and I said that everything will, will come from that, and now I want you to sacrifice it. And... And Abraham's willing to do it, and then God stops him. And and I think what's what's interesting is that the reason that this does, that that God even asking this does not make it malicious is because what it illustrated to Abraham, which was you know mercy on the part of God, but also what it illustrates to us if we look further on in the Bible. I will now read Matthew three verse seventeen. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That is God talking about Jesus. He's his son. He loves him. He's well pleased with him. And then we've got John 3.16. You probably know it from baseball games. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's worth noting the repeating of only son. Um, and it's odd as I was, uh, preparing for today's episode, because I found myself getting surprisingly, uh, emotional at this idea, this, this idea that God spared Abraham from killing his only son, but he did not spare himself because he had a love for us. And he recognized that when you think about it, God's family was his son. And he chose us over his son out of love. But we so regularly choose family or any other good thing over God. And to me, it seems if God, if, if God can do it, then we, at the, I don't think, of course, we can't be like God. But if God can do it, then we can at least try to make the effort and, and give family the proper place, which I'd say is number two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and what's interesting is, you know, you made a reference to sweet smell success and then we, we can look at what Michael does and what, uh, what Arthur does in, in the proposition. Um, Michael Corleone and the Godfather, not Mike Burns from proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're by putting family first, they're finding their own definition and thus it is a selfish act. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you put God first, as we've said on the show before, you put God first and suddenly everything is thrown into perspective. Mm-hmm. It is an important, it's important, but you can 
find the proper place for it and you can give it the love that it deserves. You can love unselfishly just as God loves, you know, loved on just as Christ loved unselfishly um, and sacrificed himself. So that's what I wanted to, that's what we wanted to talk about with this episode. Um, I, I hope we've gotten across the idea that family is not a bad thing. We're all for it. The Bible's all for it, but it is not the ultimate thing. The, you know, there's only one good and that is God. Got a question over here from Jeff uh, or a comment. More of a comment. Okay. Sorry. Um, Can you phrase it as a question? Uh, <laughs> what is, uh, there's this, there's this theme that I think we've been circling around sort of with both the, the passages at hand, both, um, the passage from Genesis and the passage from Luke. And in the, in the movies we talked about in the case of the Godfather, the pattern is broken. Uh, but in the case of these passages and in the case of the proposition that the pattern is there and that's, I think the, uh, the idea of perversion by man of this good thing into an evil, into a big evil and correction by God. And you're, you're talking about your interpretation of that Luke passage and, and the way I've always enjoyed to interpret it, uh, uh, one way is, uh, it's you know the only the only way to understand Jesus saying hate your father and mother uh, in the context of the Bible that really does uplift family as a as a a good good uh, is to understand as a corrective to what the culture around him had done to family the idol they have made 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 of it and that hatred isn't an absolute hatred it's that relative to the love you feel for God, even the love of your family is effectively hatred mm-hmm. relative to how much you love God. And I think in the proposition, it's about this, this sort of cancerous growth that, you know, the corrective eventually is, you know, there it, it's, it is that Abraham and Isaac thing. There is the, the killing of the thing most precious to you or that you've called most precious to your, your, your fam, you know, your family member, because, because it, it has become this, this evil. Um, and then I think that's the, that's the tragedy of the Godfather mm-hmm. that there's no one, there's no one to correct Michael Corleone. He he has become, his family has become his own God and he has become the most powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the, the closest thing to omnipotence in that, in that story. And that the tragedy is that there, there's no one left to correct, to correct him. Yeah. And you know what's interesting about uh, the proposition, and I think it's one of the most beautiful images uh, I've ever seen in a film, um, combined with some beautiful music that I may wind up playing at the end of the episode, I'm not sure. Um, which is, as you mentioned, and this is a spoiler, I assume if you've listened this far, you've seen the film. <laughs> um, Charlie eventually, so Arthur and his gang, they break into the captain's house during Christmas, and they... Uh, well, they, you know, beat up the captain quite a bit, and then they're going to rape his wife in front of him, which is this horrible thing. Uh, and then Charlie shows up, kills uh, one of the members of the gang, and then winds up shooting Arthur twice, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Arthur stumbles out, and. Charlie says to the captain who, who, whom he's just saved and who put him in this position, 
um, he says, I'm going to go be with my brother. And so he goes out and his brother's just sitting there staring at the sunset, dying. And Charlie sits down next to him. And, uh, and the last line of the film is Arthur saying, you got me, Charlie. <laughs> so I like that. But then he says, what are you going to do now? Mm-hmm. And then he dies. And, and so then the last image is the two of them looking out at the sunset and it's beautiful. But I also think it's, it's interesting that like, this is what I'm talking about with the perspective. He hates, like you said, the idea of hating, not hate, not this ultimate hate of his family, but hating what the place he had given his family mm. and which is family above all, even if my brother is about to kill rape and kill a woman and then her husband um my family above all like he eventually chooses the larger good and in choosing that it means he has to do what is best and so he winds up killing his brother that is the only way i'm sure if he had another way to avoid it to to make it not happen he would but that is the only way to make it happen but because he has chosen to hate and cast off the the correct thing which is um the the priority the idol of family because he's chosen to cast that off everything is in the proper perspective so much so that he almost shoots his brother out of love and it's that same love that causes him to want to be next to his brother as his brother is dying. And I think to a very real extent his brother understands it as an act of love. Oh yeah. There's a moment halfway through the movie where uh, Charlie pulls a gun on Arthur from behind him Yeah, and there's a pregnant pause where Arthur thinks that maybe this is the end yeah. and what Arthur says to Charlie is why can't you ever just stop me? Yeah. This realization that he can't stop himself and he needs his brother to stop him. And the, and the th- last thing he says to Charlie is, you, you know, almost almost a childlike thing of you got me. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's no hatred no. or judgment or condemnation in what he says. He says, what are you going to do now? He expresses concern for his brother like yeah. you don't have me anymore. You don't have the youngest brother anymore. What are you going to do now? Mm. And it's almost as though he has been somewhat redeemed by his brother shooting him. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if I'll say spiritually redeemed, but it's all, <laughs> but morally, it's almost like he's been redeemed by finally, like you said, somebody finally standing up and saying, this is not how it is supposed to be. There's something bigger than family. And yeah, it's just a... It's and that's the thing is like when you know we we regularly say on the show that like Christianity, despite what some people might think, is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. These are the choices that it sometimes means, maybe not literally shooting your family, but recognizing that there are things that are bigger than your family, and it's god and it, and in fact, if you put your family before God, then you are then you start then you start to poison that idea. And you eventually wind up like, like the the woman in in the Great Divorce, who is literally willing to drag her son to hell, provided she can be with him. Um. So, does anybody else have anything to say? Nah. All right. 
Uh, well, okay, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a little bit longer. Uh, I somewhat expected that because we have a guest. Um, <laughs> and, th- and this is the first time we've done this, uh, this type of thing before. Uh, uh, this is the first time we've done this ever. Um, and so uh, I will say, first off, Jeff, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, I am on Twitter. I have a fan page on Facebook, which I'm getting better about doing updates and stuff on. Okay. Um, yeah, and Newberg is spelled U-R-G. Okay. There's not many of us. I think if I think I'm the only one you can find, really, other than my dad. If you find a Jeff Newberg who's a real real estate developer, not me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, you got your fingers in a lot of pies. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, people would be like, "Oh, this Jeff Newberg's really got it together." <laughs> um, okay, and so. Uh, you can uh, go to the website, morethanonelesson.com. There are, uh, I think, a couple new articles on there. Josh has written a review of the artist, yes, um, writer Tyler Gunstream. Pro or con? Uh, pro. Mm. Are you, we'll talk about that off-air. That's off-air discussion. <laughs> okay. um, writer Tyler Gunstream has written a uh, response to uh, a rather controversial Covers incendiary. Incendiary, thank you. A rather incendiary story uh, that was written recently in Newsweek, and so you can uh, read that. What does Back to the Future have to do with that? I'll let you figure that out. Wow. So, yeah, you wouldn't think so. Yeah. But uh, he makes it work. So, um, so yeah, you can find Josh on Twitter. At the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. You can email him, josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, tyler at morethanonelesson.com. You can find me on Twitter, uh, that's at more lessons. Uh, I will remind everybody a couple days left, maybe at this point, just one day left to uh, contribute money to uh, the unemployed mind. That's true. And uh, I know that everything that you can do would be appreciated because it means that people get paid a little bit more, the cast and crew. So once again, Jeff, thanks for being here. Yeah, it was fun. Josh, as always, thanks for being here. Well, hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> I don't like how that ended, but nonetheless, thank you all for listening and I'll get you next time. Bye.
No, said the trees that started to moan No, said the dust that blinded his eyes Yes, said the writer as white as a bone No, said the moon that rose from his sleep No, said the cry of the dying sun No, said the planets that started to weep Yes, said the writer and laid down his gun 